Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. Let's go to page 167, which is on chapter we're dealing with again, Robert Heinlein's The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. And 167 is chapter 11. Now, Mike, as you remember, is the computer that Manuel is dealing with. And Mike's, the computer, is helping with the so-called revolution. So they're talking a little bit about history. And now they're talking about the way that they could break off, that Luna could break off from, that the moon could break off politically from the Earth. And the interesting thing is that this moon thing that was started as a penal colony, of course, has actually become a, a food source. And the big issue is that the planet Earth is overpopulated, and it needs the food that, the, that is grown on the moon, but that the moon doesn't have any renewable water. Its water is buried deep in the ground, and once it's used up, it's used up. And of course, the colonists that are on the moon, people who are living on the moon, have a weakened bone structure, so they can't re-migrate back to the Earth. So essentially, once the moon uses up all of its water to create all the grain that the Earth is eating, everyone on the moon dies, because there's no... There's no way for them to live without the water because the water is a non-renewable resource. Okay, so there's environmental issues we're going to talk about. But now we're, let's now get on to page 167. And they're talking about how they could actually break off from Earth. Despite throwing rocks, Mike knew, we all knew, that mighty Terra with 11 billion people and endless resources could not be defeated by 3 million who had nothing, even though we stood on a high place and could drop rocks on them. And what is this dropping rocks on them? What is that? Is that all about? They can put like rocks in the catapult and then like shoot them out of orbit and towards Earth and then hit places. Yeah, and what would happen when a rock from the moon hits the Earth? But it was going louder. Yeah, it would be a huge, almost like an atomic explosion. Huge, it'd be a huge explosion, like a meteor hitting the, the Earth, a big one. Okay, Mike drew parallels from 18th century when Britain's American colonies broke away and from the 20th when the colonies became independent of several empires and pointed out that in no case had a colony broken loose by brute force. No, in every case, the imperial state was busy elsewhere and had grown weary and given up without using full strength. For months we had been strong enough, had we wished, to overcome the warden's bodyguards. Once our catapult was ready, any time now, we would not be helpless, but we needed a favorable climate on Terra. For that we needed help on Terra. Well, what can we draw from this? What's going on here? What political stuff do we see here that we can... What, what parallels are being made to other places, other times? What? American Revolution. Pardon me? American Revolution, for sure. Decolonization. Adel again? Decolonization. The colonization, decolonization. 
Now, what what about the the whole issue with um, no colony had broken loose by brute force? That's not true. Uh, the Americans drove the British out, so they broke through by pretty much but the force. But well, the British force didn't put like they didn't care full. They didn't bring their full army into America to make sure they were in check. I think that assertion goes with the twentieth, not the eighteenth. Oh, once they were already taken care. But yeah, and I mean, while there was internal fighting, the, I mean, with the decolonization, there wasn't fighting between the parent and the colony. There was a lot of internal conflict. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's pretty well, much Well, I don't know. As I read this, it, he seems to be suggesting his interpretation is that that in every case in which there was a colony, the colony never militarily defeated the colonizing it's power. Go ahead. Oh, no. Like no, no I was just going to say it's not true because we had to fight in the American Revolution, like, with military. Well, but we didn't militarily defeat them. Yes, you Americans drove the British of military. Yeah. Well, no, 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 there was military conflict, but I always thought the assertion was that they gave up because they could have sent more troops. That, I mean... I think that's what Mike, <coughs> the computer, is talking about. That the... <coughs> see, when you're talking about military defeat... One way to interpret that is that both powers invested everything they had to conquer each other, and that one was finally defeated, totally and irrevocably gone. That's one way of looking at it. Go ahead, Otto. That's one way of looking at it. But the other way you could look at it is in a situational perspective where you look at the power involved and mm-hmm. you think what is the total power of war. Because, like, um, if you look at the total power of war, that, like, take a modern conflict, if one came up, then total power of war would involve nukes and everything, which, rather than a situation of power, which would involve, like, the troops that you send over there. So, if you look at... Actually, you're raising some very good points, Adol. I mean, you're really raising some excellent points. Uh, Military conflicts especially today, are, would, be, would be hugely devastating. But now, let's separate out, because I actually want to get back to this, what you're just saying. Let's separate out the issue of colonization and breaking away from a total military confrontation. When a military power confronts another military power with the, with the effect of having a war, such as when the, when the Axis powers and the, and the, uh, and the Allies were competing when you have Nazi Germany going against the United States. Well, that was an all-out conflict. Now that was not a colonial power. That was an all-out one nation against another. And you had to have the total military destruction of Germany. I mean, Germany was just leveled. Similarly with Japan, when the United States was against Japan in World War II, the total destruction, military conquering of the nation of Japan. Now. That's different from colonies. You see, when there's colonies, colonies there's a very close relationship economically as well as also with friendship ties with the the colonizing power and the the other power. And very rarely do you have a situation where the colonizing power throws the kitchen sink at the colony. What that happens because they don't want to destroy their investment. There's too much there with them. In fact, their own people are there. What they eventually end up doing is, well, 
you tell well, me. I was going to say, well, think like India and Great Britain. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, there was like Great Britain didn't bring to bear its entire military force on India. I mean, you know, they got thrown out by the Indian people. Right. Actually, what happened, according to what Mike was saying, and it's basically true, is Britain became occupied with a lot of other stuff. In addition, Britain, when it was colonized in the United States, and it had the we had our our, our uh, independence struggle, we also had a situation where Britain was dealing with a lot of other things that it had to struggle with, a lot of conflicts with the uh, with the uh, the Europe with mainland Europe. So it was. I mean, the rivalry that it was dealing with with France, you know, I mean, that whole period was a very difficult period for Britain. And basically, it just walked away. I mean, it just did not want to invest the resources to try to keep hold of that thing. Eventually, colonies just become too much of a nuisance, and you have to throw them off. That's different from a military confrontation where it's all out. Now, I'm thinking that you're uh, thinking along those lines... Let's take a look at what a military confrontation might be. What's what's the big feared military con- confrontation between the United States and somebody else that we're thinking about? Iran. Iran. Now, what's going on with that? Well, it, it wouldn't be the same thing. They're not a colony. They're not a colony. So let's talk about it in terms of what a real knockdown, drag out military conflict would be. Well, well it's a stalemate, isn't it? Go ahead, Alan. At the moment, it's a stalemate because they have resources that we need and. We have the... And the resources that they have are... Oil. Oil. And we've got like, the overwhelming military power that we can throw at them. So yeah. if we throw that at them, then they're going to like hurt us with the oil. Like, Because they're not going to just turn over and die. So it'll take us a while to get there. And which time they'll probably stop <coughs> all the war together, which will hurt our economy. Well, now let's look at this. If This is a good point you're raising. If we did attack Iran... Would we be able to conquer them? Well, and it, well, I mean, I, I mean, you can see how like someone in the White House thought this out strategically. I mean, if you take a rock, you have a rocky oil, then and look how much trouble it's gotten in. We don't seem to have the Iraqi oil. So. Well, I mean, well, I mean, the principle being that if you had the Iraqi oil and you attacked Iran and OPEC cut you off, you still have a source of oil. Yeah. Except not even Iraq with its oil fields can't hope to measure up to OPEC. If OPEC embargo the US, like oil prices are gonna go through the roof. I think OPEC embargo with the US. Let, let's put areas. some let's put some nuts and bolts on this discussion here. Let's look at today's New York Times. This is uh, an editorial in today's New York Times. It's very brief, but it's the lead editorial. And this is Tuesday, April eleventh, two thousand and six. Paul Krugman had a very interesting opinion piece yesterday on the same subject. But this is a New York Times editorial. Military fantasies on Iran. Iraq shows just how badly things can go when an administration rashly embraces simple military solutions to complicated problems. Shutting its ears to military and intelligence professionals who turn out to be tragically prescient. That lesson has yet to be absorbed by the Bush administration, which is now reportedly honing plans for airstrikes on Iranian nuclear facilities. Congress and the country need to ask the administration just what is going on and just what it hopes to accomplish by this latest saber-rattling. If the administration's real goal is to change minds in Iran and energize diplomacy, it is not going about it in a very smart way. If instead... It intends to proceed with a bombing campaign when and if diplomacy fails. 
Congress and the people need to force the kind of serious national debate that never really took place before the American invasion of Iraq. Routine contingency planning goes on all the time in the Pentagon, but the discussions on Iran seem to have progressed beyond this level, with high administration officials pushing the process and dropping indirect hints of possible future American military action in language that sometimes precalls sometimes recalls statements made before the invasion of Iraq. The Washington Post Post reports that two main options are being seriously considered. A limited strike against Iranian nuclear-related sites or a broader campaign against a wide range of military and political targets. The planners are also looking at ways America could use tactical nuclear weapons to penetrate Iran's heavily reinforced underground uranium enrichment complex at Natanz. The British government is said to take Washington's planning exercises seriously enough to have worked out security arrangements for its own diplomats and citizens in the event of American air attacks. War with Iran would be reckless folly, especially with most of America's ground forces tied up in Iraq where they are particularly vulnerable to retaliation from Iran and its Iraqi Shiite allies. Nor is there any guarantee that such a conflict would remain limited to airstrikes. Bombing alone probably cannot destroy all of Iran's nuclear facilities, some of which are underground and fortified, and possibly others in unknown locations. In fact, Iran already has much of the material and know-how to make nuclear bombs, and is believed to be about 10 years away from building them. Although I would, I may dispute that. 10 years, I wonder if they just put that in there to sort of discourage the bombing now. I've heard much sooner. (coughs) But anyway, the best hope for avoiding a nuclear-armed Iran lies in encouraging political evolution there over the next decade. It is important to make clear to the Iranian people that they have no need for nuclear weapons, and would actually be better off without them. Years of frustrating diplomacy have not managed to deflect Iran's nuclear ambitions, but American airstrikes are not likely to either. The best they could hope to achieve is delay, but that results would be far outweighed, but that result would be far outweighed by the likely consequences. An American bombing campaign would surely rally the the Iranian people behind the Islamic government and the nuclear program, with those efforts multiplied exponentially if the Pentagon itself resorted to nuclear weapons in the name of trying to stop Iran from building nuclear bombs. Go ahead. There's no way that anybody would think of using a tactical nuclear weapon. Actually, that's so interesting. the title of Paul Krugman's opinion column yesterday was "Yes, He Would," <laughs> which is you know, everyone says, "No, that can't happen." Everyone says, like, "America already lost a whole lot of reputation, like placing in the world if they resorted to tactical nuclear warfare." Like even the British who supported them in Iraq wouldn't be happy with that at all. Nobody wants to see a tactical nuclear. Well, uh, that's the argument, that nobody would want to see it. On the other hand, would conventional forces actually do it? That's the real problem. And so that double escalation... Pardon uh, me? If America does use a tactical nuke, 
it would lead to a very rapid escalation. Escalation. Well, you certainly have the desire for nuclear proliferation all throughout the Middle East. Uh, Iran would certainly go nuclear at that point, it would seem to me. And there is no way in the world that uh, a Sunni-dominated Saudi Arabia would sit by if Iran was a Shiite-dominated nuclear power. Yeah, but the thing so is, they could just nuke themselves. Like, they can't... The, no, none of those powers have anything that would get over here. Like, retaliation would be nuking themselves. Um, and, like, at the moment, the know-how is out there in the world. It's not going to be that hard if they really, really wanted to. The Iranians are getting really good at missiles, though. They even have an under, under underwater missile. A missile that flies underwater and can knock out any one of our aircraft carriers, and that's without a nuclear weapon on it. The only other p- nation on Earth that has that is Russia. We don't even have something like that. So the Iranians are really quite good. Let's not underestimate their weapons-building skills. They really are quite good at certain things. Are they purposely threatening America? No, they're apparently trying to um, defend themselves against what they think is uh, going to be an imminent strike. That's what people seem to be They're suggesting. purposely threatening Israel. It's not an imminent strike, but a, an eventual so strike. It's stupid for America to get involved in something like that. It's almost like they're well, a power it would, trip. It would be stupid. The thing is, they are actively threatening Israel. Israel's always been... Oh, th- there's, there's no question Iran is, is wild. I mean, the current president of Iran is just playing bonkers. Uh, and he does literally threaten Israel. And he has talked, he's talked about saber-rattling. He has talked in ways that seem to suggest he would be willing to drop a bomb, a nuclear bomb on Israel. So is America willing to go, go, ahead. Is America willing to, go to war to protect Israel? Well, his saber-rattling is going to get Israel to retaliate. I mean, Israel at the moment won't risk an attack on a Muslim country because that would get every, uh, even if it's Sunnis and Shias. Yeah, but you got to watch out for what Israel will and won't do because they're very (laughs) territorial on that little piece of land they got. And, I mean, anybody, I mean, that's like the the Six Day War. I mean, a bunch of people attacked them at once and they ended up taking half the Sinai Desert and out into Syria and all kinds of different places they had to give back. Now, this is an interesting question. I'm glad both uh, both of you have raised this. Um, All those cases was well taken, though, because you see, Israel is. This is the reason I brought up this issue is I just wanted to bring up the issue of what happens when nations get tied up with other things. We were originally talking about colonizing powers and how they get tied up with other things and then the colony just becomes too much of a hassle and they just let it go. Well, this is a situation where Israel is currently tied up with an awful lot of stuff. They're trying to separate themselves from the Palestinians. They're trying to calm things down with their neighbors. Iraq is up in flames. So Israel might not be in a situation like it was you know, many decades ago when it took out the Iraqi nuclear facilities. Iraq had a nuclear reactor that it was going to activate. actually put fuel activate within a few days. And like three days before they were literally going to put the fuel in. There was a bombing run. It was a bombing run, a very fascinating one. Israeli pilots speaking totally fluent Arabic uh, basically sent Israeli jets electronically disguised as Saudi jets into Iraqi territory and speaking you know, when, and when uh, when and when Saudi and Iraqi uh, well actually when when Arabic it might have been actually a Jordanian um, military control tower people contacted them they spoke back in Arabic saying they were from Saudi Arabia just doing something XYZ and no one no one bothered and they came in with the laser guided bombs and uh exceptionally accurate one bomb hit the top of the nuclear of the nuclear facility 
poked a hole in the dome, and the other bombs from each of the other jets went right through the hole. <laughs> it, was very, it was a very interesting, exceptionally well done raid. But that, what happened was that the, Iraq, the Iraqi nuclear facility was simply destroyed. Now, that was a facility that was on the surface that was easy to get. There was no underground stuff. Okay? And that was at a time when the military threat from the other Arabic nations around it wasn't all that great. But I, I, Israel right now is tied up. And my only my concern is that Israel might have actually communicated on these lines with the United States and saying, look, we can't do it now. We are just like Britain was tied up with the United States when it was dealing with its when it's dealing with its problems with us. When, you know, when the Revolutionary War was going on. Well, Israel was, <coughs> was dealing with its problems, and it may not be in a position, as Adol said, to, uh, to well, actually do anything. Is, I think you can't underestimate, like, just the national pride in yeah. Israel. I mean, but at the same time, you can't underestimate the anger which, like, the surrounding country. Israel has always been, like, the odd man in the Middle East. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I definitely understand, but what, what I'm saying is that when the Iranian president starts saber rattling, it's 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 like a it's like a, a national insult. It's not like here where like some people you know if someone threatened they were, they were going to attack the U.S. Some people would say they were bluffing. Some people would say we should have diplomacy. Some people would say we should attack them. But in Israel, it's like a, a national like pride thing. Could it be I mean, bluffing? You have to be careful about like it's a national pride thing. I definitely agree with that. Could it be bluffing though? What the Iranians? No, you mean the U.S. Are the U.S. trying to? No, the well, I mean. National pride is good and everything, but you just don't want to test any of these nations now. You don't want to test Israel, you don't want to test Iran, you don't want to test Saudi Arabia. You just don't want an all-out, everyone upset. Let's all just... Two, four, four, three. Kelsey, yeah. what are you saying? Yeah, I'm scared about that okay, more than anything else. That's yeah. what I was just saying. That it seems like the more conflict that we keep having and the more upset these countries are getting, it's going to turn into another war, world war. Yeah. No one wants. And people don't... People don't ever like take into account the fact that, like in the U.S., like there are restraints on us, like yeah. like they're like they're governmentally imposed restraints on what we can and can't do. But I mean, over there, you're playing with some people who like Mossad doesn't have a problem assassinating people. That's no longer legal in the U.S. You can't do that. Yeah. So well, they I, I I'm just going by what the stated laws are in the U.S. They say that you can't go assassinate people, whereas Mossad has no such restrictions on it. Things like that are what are are you know. It's a whole other level of gameplay that we don't have here. It's gonna be a deadly. Yeah. Like, no, I, I, on the other hand, I, I must. I'm sorry. Oh no, I was just gonna say, if a world war was going to happen, it'd be like more deadly than before because all these different countries have the nuclear yeah. like capacity to like destroy us or not destroy us, yeah. but hurt us. Really yeah. We need a female president. A female <laughs> president. Well, you know, there's there's another that wrinkle. I, but you know, one thing I might comment on with Jason, I dealt with an awful lot of. Um, I like joking. It would work out a lot better. If we had a female president, there's like no one. They would have no wars. Yeah, we would be able to compromise easily. You you just assume that they'd have like tea parties in the rose garden and it would just I mean, fall it would work. It would work. Let's set our nuclear weapons aside. Let's not be sexist. Okay. Some females. No, no, I'm joking. Oh, I'm completely. I'm serious. Can be super tough. I mean, look at Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady. I mean, <laughs> okay. Let's. Uh, what I, what I'm really trying to point to here is that politics can be very complex, and what what really Heinlein's talking about here is the complexity of the nature when colonizing powers just become involved with things and. It's just things become very complicated. There's, we often in the United States look at politics rather simply. You know, Iran's developing nuclear weapons. We've got to stop it no matter what. 
and and then other people say, yeah, but we can't we can't attack them or we can't nuke them or anything. Everything is so binary. We can't do this, we can't do that, so we can do this, we can't do that. But Heinlein's actually saying that politics is really complicated. It's just complicated. Listen to this. This is on the front page, and I'm only going to read three paragraphs of today's New York Times. Front page, it's called the White House Memo. And again, this is today, Tuesday, April 11, 2006. With one filing, prosecutor puts Bush in the spotlight. From the early days of the CIA leak investigation in 2003, Bush White House, the Bush White House has insisted there was no effort to discredit Joseph C. Wilson IV, the man who emerged as the most damaging critic of the administration's case that Saddam Hussein was seeking to build nuclear weapons. But now White House officials, and specifically President Bush and Vice President Dick Cheney, have been pitched back into the center of the nearly three-year controversy, this time because of the prosecutor's court filing in the case that asserts that there was a strong desire by many, including multiple people in the White House, to undermine Mr. Wilson. The new assertions by the special prosecutor, Patrick J. Fitzgerald, have put administration officials on the spot in a way they have not been for months as the tension in the leak case seems to have, seems to be shifting away from the White House to the pretrial procedural skirmishes in perjury and obstruction charges against Mr. Cheney's former chief of staff, I. Lewis Libby Jr. So now things are not moving away from the White House. They're refocusing again on the White House. How could this actually impact? Paul Krugman made a point about things like this yesterday in his opinion column. Let's see if you can do it. How could things like this impact whether we would attack Iran? <laughs> it may seem like totally unrelated, but why? Wait, uh, about the... the I'm, I'm sorry. How does the fact that we... The focus now is becoming more of whether President Bush and Dick Cheney, Vice President Dick Cheney, actually authorize the leak of information and... What hasn't been discussed yet is whether they authorized the leak of the name of Valerie Plume. This is the the wife of Mr. Wilson, who was uh, the CIA agent. You know, there's another thing, too, that news media is often very naive, and they often take a long time to sort things out. But the most damaging thing that really has not been reported yet, of course, is why is it that a CIA agent should not be disclosed? Why, if the name of the CIA agent comes up, the wife of Joseph Wilson is a CIA agent. What does that mean? Does that mean that the CIA agent... Well, what do, what do you think that means? What what well, would be the implications of that? They're burnt. What's that? If, you dis- if their identity is disclosed, it means they're burnt. They can no longer be set out in the field. Now, that's what the news media has reported all, all along, that their that their job is over as a CIA agent. But is, go ahead. Well, I mean, well, not necessarily as a CIA agent, but as a field agent. I mean, you, you can't put someone into the field where any organization can look up their name and say, okay. oh... You know, Jim Jim yeah. Black. You know, he's our he's you know the head of field operations in Ireland. Well, you can't send him back into Ireland. You can't send him anywhere because anybody in the world can look it up and say Jim Black. That's what he looks like. And all right, but now both of you are actually doing the exact same thing that the news media has been doing for years on this case. That's not the real issue. You see, the real issue is not that the person can't do the job anymore. They can get another job. They can get a job as a writer or as a professor or something. The real problem is that everyone that they have ever had contact with in any nation for their entire career 
is then susceptible to arrest, imprisonment, and death. Because what happens is there, there's probably been a number of arrests, families been prosecuted. You know, these in these developing countries, it, it could be anyone from the person who delivered milk to the CIA agent to the person they worked in the office with. But if you're in a if you're in one of these host countries like Niger or, or some other country, and she's worked in a number of countries apparently. Now everybody knows she was a CIA agent. The very first thing the governments in all of those countries will, will, will do once it's outed in the news that she was a CIA agent is who did she connect with? Who did she contact? I want everybody who she ever had contact with. Very likely some people have been rounded up, imprisoned, families destitute, run off, uh, and killed. Some people probably have died because of this. And the news media has not mentioned that at all. It's always poor Valerie. She doesn't have a job anymore. The reality is some people probably have suffered tremendously in those host countries because of this information. So leaking of the information, if it in fact has resulted in some people being imprisoned and death and perhaps even dying, that's not hurting uh, Ms. Plume's job. It's murder. It's, you, uh, it's, it's serious. I mean, it's it's serious business. Wasn't it back in the Carter administration that they released the lists of all of the assassins in the CIA? Wasn't it the Carter administration or was it the Bush? Uh, or, uh, it wasn't Bush one. It was either Carter or Clinton. I can't remember which. No, it was Clinton where they passed the bill that the CIA couldn't assassinate people. Maybe that was Carter and well, Clinton. Yeah. There, there were lists. There have been various there were lists of CIA agents that were released under one administration or the other, and. I just I remember there was a big uproar about how you know this was a horrible thing to do, and the media was like, "Well, why they're not active anymore?" And yeah, yeah, but it it affects people later. Yeah, yeah. but um, actually, that affected also Soviet people. That when the former Soviet Union collapsed, there were issues with uh, some people. Information about some people had been released, and in fact, those people and those people who were associated with them were then arrested. In, in Russia, I didn't follow it long enough to know if they were killed or just arrested and imprisoned, but it did have an effect. But the issue is, how does this now affect this idea that the Bush White House is now being put under the light again with the special prosecutor filings uh, with regard to the CIA case? How would that affect bombing Iran? Again, we're talking about the complexities of things. This is something that Paul Krugman raised explicitly yesterday. Go ahead. Going to war would require trust that the government's not telling you lies. It would require what, Adol? That you have to have some faith in what the government's telling you that they're going, that Iran's going to be a danger. Okay, you have to have some faith in what they're telling you that Iran's going to be a For danger. For example, when we went to war with Iraq, there was the whole like propaganda, the government telling everybody that. Yeah. But if uh, they tried to do that again with light of the fact that they with light of this new thing that they've been lied to, then but it could, the trust that they have then is going to be harder to gain. Okay, so, you know, the trust of the American people will be harder to give. The trust of the military. The trust of the military will be harder to give. But there's a bigger issue that I'm really trying to push you towards, which is why would the Bush administration possibly be more likely to bomb Iran because of Special Prosecutor Patrick Fitzgerald. And to get the thing off, the, to get heat off this topic and onto something else. Yeah, you know, to get the heat off the topic. Well, in a sense, look, there's a movie out there. What is it called? Wag the Dog or something? Yeah. Where, where there's a, you know, presidential ratings are going down, troubles are all. What we need is a country to invade. It was about Clinton. 
wasn't it? It was about Clinton deciding on Kosovo was the underlying analogy. This has been going on for an awful long time. I mean, invasions into lots of places from... Oh, I know, but I think it was... I mean, wasn't it released during Clinton's administration based on the tenuous analogy that it was about his decision whether or not to invade Kosovo? I've never heard that, that it was tied oh. directly to that particular incident. It was, it was a more general thing that's occurred and reoccurred many times in the United States. But the basic idea that Paul Krugman was raising yesterday is that it looks like the... Let's, let's, let's put two and two together. Look at the complexity of the situation. What's going to happen in November if things keep going the way they're going now in terms of the congressional elections? One-third of the Senate is up and the entire House is up for election. Democrats have a chance. Pardon me? Democrats have a chance. Yeah, Democrats have a chance. In fact, there's a, there's a very reasonable possibility that the Republicans, in terms of maintaining majorities, will be swept out of both the House and the Senate. They will lose control of the, both the House and the Senate. What would happen if the Democrats then were in control of the House and the Senate? The president would have trouble. No, go ahead. Hillary? The president would have trouble passing legislation that he. Well, would. he would have trouble passing legislation. True, but he's already having trouble passing legislation. What else would happen that would be more of a direct threat to the president? He could be impeached. That would be a far end thing, but that's a possibility. And we all know what that what would means happen, in the greater. What would happen in between impeachment and? Democrats They'd coming investigate in. repeatedly. Investigate. Now, why would they be able to investigate things that they can't investigate now? Because doesn't it require some majority or something to set up a special investigation? Exactly. What you need to have is you need to have control over the committees, and the committees would then, they'd have to have Democratic control over the committees, and then the Democratic control and the majority, the, major, the majority party in the House and the Senate controls who's going to lead, who's going to run those committees, who heads those committees. And then those committees would then have what they call subpoena power. So then those committees can then subpoena all types of documents from the White House and say, I want it, I'm sorry, you're going to give it to us now. That's what brought down Richard Nixon. That, uh, that, that reminds me, did you see um, Fun with Dick and Jane? No, I actually did not see that one. Well, there's a scene of being in it's one of these you know, major global corporations like Enron that's going under. Yes, yeah. And he gets promoted right before they're going under so he can be the, like, fall guy. Mm-hmm. And he goes walking through the corporate offices. People are running around with potted plants and just, like, shredding paper and there are fires in the wastebaskets. And they're, like, getting rid of all this paperwork. And I can just see the whole White House, like, you know, people, like, you know, throwing stuff in the wastebaskets, lighting fires out in front, bonfire no, on the lawn. If that happens, you see, then there's other issues. Uh, then then you're talking about destroying evidence and then a lot of people would face jail charges and that happened during Nixon's White House and a lot was learned during Nixon's White House just because you're in the White House doesn't mean you're you know can't go to jail so a lot of people including the Attorney General uh, and a lot of other people uh, went to jail and they had trouble back in the Nixon days and Nixon's what brought Nixon down was not the plumbers actually um you know, breaking into the Watergate Hotel to spy on the Democratic National Convention. What brought Nixon down was the cover-up, the the leaking, I mean, the destruction of information, and of course that huge twenty-minute gap where John Dean said he had a conversation that was missing imp- from the tapes. It was missing from the tapes. But the same thing happened. I mean, the same thing happened to Clinton. It's like a recurring theme on pres- uh, of presidents. You know, if he came out right at the beginning and said, "Wow, I had sex with her," people would have been like, "Well, infidelity, yes." What should we impeach him? No. 
But instead, there was this giant cover-up, and he got him in more trouble in the end than he would have gotten in the first okay. place. Now, one of the interesting things you can bring about the Clinton scandal is that during the time when the Clinton scandal was going on, he basically couldn't do anything. There was nothing else. That could, the governance basically stopped. So what would happen if the Democrats take over the House and the Senate in the United States? It'd be the end. Isn't there a name for that? Is it, doesn't it make Bush like a lame duck president? Yeah, he would, well, he's already going to be a lame duck president, but it would be, it would be, he would, he would be facing a hostile House and a hostile Senate. There would be subpoenas all over the place. He would be spending the rest of the two years defending himself. And if all of these smoking, smoking guns actually, if, even just, even if just a couple of these smoking guns turned out to be very potent, he could be talking about very serious, serious problems uh, with regard to maintaining his presidency. And then, I mean, just and even if they does, I mean, Democrats will have the next president. People will lose faith in the Republican Party for a while. Well, it would certainly make it much more difficult for the Republicans to mount a, a, a strong offense in 2008 if they lose the House and the Senate, and then the House and Senate start and with all Against of these the subpoena powers and everything like that. They need a war. They need a war. They need a war to stop whatever's going to happen. If they just sit and do nothing, the polls are clearly showing the Republicans are losing their shirts. So the thing is, what else can the Republicans do? Well, I mean, the thing is, with an approval rating of 33% or something, I mean, it's not going to, like, magically skyrocket if he invades Iran. I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, but at the same time, like... It may take the pressure off of, like, the smoking gun, but at the same time, he's going to just watch his approval ratings plummet into, like, single digits if he goes and invades Iran, which will do the same thing in terms of... But what, what else can he do at this point? Can what else can he do? Not go kill a bunch of U.S. soldiers I mean, in that's, Iran. that's true. I mean, but he, I mean, it looks like his approval rating is going to drop anyways. He's like, well, maybe if I get a war and get lucky... Well, he's danged if he doesn't, danged if he doesn't, but, I mean... You know, it's a this very tough. Well, we're, it's in a tough situation. The economy is, is is getting ready to tank because of the debt. I mean, it's we have we're, we're increasing debt faster than you can than you can breathe there, and at the same time, we're in a situation where Iran is going to go nuclear. If nothing happens, it is going to go nuclear, and it has a president currently that is nuts. So we uh, we actually do have a situation where where we where we do have some legitimate risks. On the other hand, we're we have a volunteer military that is way overstretched. The National Guard has no business being in Iran and in, in Iraq. The draft would come back in. Believe me, folks. Trust me on this one. You're facing active military duty. If this, if a, if a huge Middle East war breaks out over the next four, in, you know, in four years, you're talking serious deferments. You have to be seeking. It's not just volunteer poor people being sent over to defend the wealth the wealthy on the United States, it's you folks who'd be going. Because that big of a war, if it spilled out, if it wasn't just a, when the Israelis attacked the Iraqi nuclear facility long ago, it was a tactical strike, surgical strike, it just got it out, and it was gone. It was done and over. This wouldn't be that way. Evidence, proof positive of this. What happened when Iraq thought it was going to make a quick war against Iran? They had dual 401, and it got pushed back into Iraq, and people still... How long did Iraq fight Iran? And how many Iranians were willing to sacrifice themselves? <laughs> there were some millions that were... They just, remember those in the old days? This is the days of the Ayatollah Khomeini. You had hundreds of thousands of people being able to just march into Iraqi 
fire that were they were going they were dying as martyrs if you have a major attack on Iranian soil you're bringing back the possibility of nationalizing what's basically a crumbling <coughs> regime in Iran but it may take longer to crumble but it's you know it's having difficulties you're ha- you're you're talking about re-energizing that that regime for you know another 20 30 years now mind you it's not completely collapsed it has a lot of resources at 63 dollars a barrel iran can keep going as it you know as the, you know for a long time the best possible thing if you want to think about draconian solutions the best possible thing we could do is actually put through a two dollar gallon gas tax here in the united states and cut down our own gasoline consumption but that's going in a different direction now let's i don't want to run out of time it's 9 30 so let me go over to uh, 169 169 this is the beginning of chapter 12 let's talk about what they're doing here 169 everyone turn to that page April and May 76 were more hard work and increasing effort to stir up loonies against Warden and goad him into retaliation trouble with Mort the ward the wart trouble with Mort the wart was that he was not a bad egg nothing to hate about him other than the fact he was symbol of authority and necessary to frighten him to get him to do anything and average loony was just as bad he despised warden as a matter of ritual but was not stuff that makes revolutionists he wouldn't he couldn't be bothered beer bedding women and work only thing that kept revolution from dying of anemia was that peace dragons had real talent for antagonizing the peace dragons of course were like the local police but even them we had to keep stirred up this is a, some type of a Slavic accent he's got, so the English is a little funny. Prof kept saying we needed a Boston Tea Party, referring to mythical incident in an earlier revolution, by which he meant a public ruckus to grab attention. We kept trying. Mike rewrote lyrics of old revolutionary songs. Mike, of course, is the computer. Marseillaise, Internationale, Yankee Doodle, We Shall Overcome, Pie in the Sky, etc., giving them words to fit Luna, stuff like sons of rock and boredom will you let the warden take from you your liberty (laughs) Simon Jester spread them around and when one took hold we pushed it music only by radio and video this put warden in the silly position of forbidding playing of certain tunes which suited us people could whistle what's he talking about there he's talking about how hard it is to keep a revolution going I mean, naturally, if nothing happens, people just kind of get bored. Like, the attention span of the average person for a revolution is rather short. I mean, if no one, if, like, I mean, it's, it's like, if no one's actively hurting you, then what have you got a problem with? Just keep doing things the way they are, because you're living fine, you know? Well, that's, that's correct. There, there's a word for it in the social sciences. They have an actual word for this. It starts with an M. Anyone know what that is? M-O-B are the first three letters. Mobilization. The issue with that they're trying to do there is to mobilize people. Mobilization for political campaigns, mobilization for, um, you know, revolutions, getting people actively involved. 
Now, what's this thing about the songs? Anyone have any idea about the songs? What is that? What is that referring to? People have been making songs about political stuff for a long time, like Bob Marley, and long before that. Bob Marley, yeah. Bob Marley was a big one, and I mean, just it's like the thing is, you can like you can chant. I mean, you can like give people you know speeches, mm-hmm. but if you give them a song, man, it's gonna get stuck in their head. They're gonna sing it, and they're gonna like sing it to people, and like around them, and they're gonna sing it when they're going to work, and they're gonna sing it when they're coming home, and pretty soon you got everyone singing this song. And, you know, it's all about revolution or something. You know, that's great. That's exactly what these revolutionary songs do. Songs do it. Now, it goes all the way back. Some of the earliest revolutionary songs were, deve- were, invent- were written by a, a guy called Joe Hill. Who's Joe Hill? Well, he was a Swedish immigrant into the United States who, talk about contributions of immigrants, he fundamentally helped the unionization movement in the United States in the early parts of the uh, of the 20th century. So what you had was heavy worker exploitation, especially in the mining industry, but also on the docks and other words. And Joe Hill was a person who wrote songs. Now, he couldn't write the, the songs and teach people new, new lyrics, I mean, teach people new tunes, because a lot of times when they had these marches for better working conditions all over the country, he, he would not be, they would not have an instrument there to play it along, and they would not be able to teach a new tune. So what they used is they used old tunes that were already known by people, and he would write new lyrics. And these lyrics were eventually published by the IWW, otherwise known as the Wobblies, which is the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 one of the early major union organization, mobilizing organizations, and to get people to mobilize politically so that they would join the union and fight for rights, he would write these songs. Now, one of the songs that it's referenced here, that Robert Highland has written here, is called Pie in the Sky. Now, the name of the song, the original one, it was often called Pie in the Sky, but that was not the actual name of the song. It was a lyric in the song. The original the original uh, song was called The Preacher and the Slave. And it went with the tune, Sweet By and By. Okay, uh, so let me read you the name, re- let me read you the lyrics of the, of the song, and you can understand how people would, they'd memorize, they'd have a song sheet, or the little red book, which would have all of Joe Hill's songs, and when they were marching and demonstrating, they'd be all singing these songs, mobilizing internally with common common tunes that people already knew but on the same hand with these new lyrics here the here goes this was first published in 1911 July 6 and here it went written by Joe Hill long haired preachers come out every night try to tell you what's wrong and what's right but when asked how about something to eat they will answer with voices so sweet you will eat by and by in that glorious land above the sky. Work and pray, live on hay. You'll get pie in the sky when you die. The starvation army they play, they sing and they clap and they pray till they get all your coin on the drum. Then they'll tell you when you're on the bum. High rollers and jumpers come out. They holler, they jump, and they shout. Give your money to Jesus, they say. He will cure all diseases today if you fight hard for children and wife. Try to get something good in his life, in this life. You're a sinner and bad man, they'll tell. 
they tell, when you die, you will sure go to hell. Working men of all countries unite, side by side, we, we for freedom will fight. When the world and its wealth we have gained, to the grafters will sing this refrain. You will eat by and by, when you've learned how to cook and to fry. Chop some wood, twill do you good, and you'll eat the sweet by. You'll eat in the sweet by and by. Now, what's he referring to? Did the working men of the world unite in there? Yes, yes, yes. Working men of all countries unite. Way to bust out the Marxist. Well, actually, they were. There was a. There was a strong uh, leftist influence in the early working unions and early working movement. But the thing is that what would happen in these camps? that you had all around the country in the in our early time you'd have a lot of people that were homeless uh, vagrants people that would gather in these camps in the cities heavily exploited and they would they were very much like the immigrants that uh, many immigrants that you have here in the United States they come in they live in the shadows of the country and they show up at certain parking lots out near Home Depot and other places looking for work on a, and they congregate in certain places the Sydney Marcus Home Depot well, and, and then what happens was the uh, the religionists, such as the Salvation Army, used to go there and used to preach for them and say, don't fight for your rights, fight for, you know, your, your place in heaven. So this particular song was written to combat... Uh, there was a competition. There was a union people saying, let's mobilize. You're here in these camps, mobilize with us. And then the Salvation Army was there saying, don't mobilize, become a follower of Jesus. So there was a competition between two groups that were trying to mobilize the same people. And so this song was directed at mobilizing the people to become workers and unionists. And it was also fighting the religionists, in that case, the Salvation Army. So these songs written by Joe Hill were very specific. They were very targeted and very bitter. I mean, really strong. People used to spread their ideology with these songs. They used to talk about it, explain things. And now, Jason, you mentioned Bob Marley. That's exactly what Bob Marley used to do with reggae music. With reggae music, he eventually, he essentially invented reggae music because it became a form of political proselytization and also uh, news interpretation for a, a huge collection of, of of the third world, not just people out of Jamaica. And that that ability to do that through song was tremendously potent and in fact he was followed by the CIA and all types of people in, in Washington it's, it's a historical record now undisputed and the historical record is very clear they were worried about that level of revolutionary stuff well what Mike was trying to do Mike the computer here in Highland's novel was trying to duplicate some of that some of those efforts sort of pulling all the strings to do stuff like that and that's what we're getting at here I want to get some more stuff done before we close for the day, so let's go over to page 204 and 205. Now, let's see what chapter this is. Um, it's, uh, it's in book two, chapter... Mm, chapter 14. Um... section also that um, okay I was actually going to try another thing so, alright let's, let's, let's do that let's 
Go to 204 and 205. And it's down near the bottom of the page. And let's just read it. And uh, one female, most were men, but women made up for it in silliness, had a long list she wanted to uh, make permanent laws about private matters. No more plural marriage of any sort. No divorces, no fornication, had to look that one up. No drinks any longer, 4% beer. No links, no drinks any stronger than 4%. Beer, churches, church services only on Saturdays, and all else to stop that day. Air and temperature and pressure engineering lady, phones and capsules, a long list of drugs to be prohibited, and a shorter list dispensed only by licensed physicians. What is a licensed physician? Healer I go to has a sign reading practical doctor, which makes books on a side, uh, which is why I don't go to him. Look, lady, aren't any medical, there aren't any medical books on Luna. She even wanted to make gambling illegal. Well, if Luna couldn't roll double or nothing, if a loony couldn't roll double or nothing, he would go to a shop that would, even if dice were loaded. The thing that got me was not her list of things she hated, since she was obviously crazy as a cyborg, but the fact that always somebody agreed with her prohibitions. Must be yearning deep in human heart to stop other people from doing as they please. Rules, laws, always for the other fellow. A murky part of us, something we had before we came down out of the trees and failed to shock when we stood up because not one of those people said, please pass this so that I won't be able to do something now. I should stop. Nyet Tavarishi was always something they hated to see neighbors doing. Stop them from, stop them for their own good, not because the speaker claimed to be harmed by it. Okay, what's going on here? They're having a meeting, of course, and what kind of meeting is going on? Does anyone remember? Anyone remember? But remember, they're... Oh, um, they're having their first Congress. Yes. And this woman gets up and says she wants this long list of things, and... It's like, it's this giant, it's just, it's really stupid because he's saying that, like, people always want to stop people from doing other things. Um, Stop, I'm sorry, stop people from doing, stop other people from doing things that they want to do. Not putting restrictions on themselves. Now, we're running out of time, so let me put a few pieces together here. What happens when you get any type of new government? You have to make laws. You have to make laws. And if the people have not had experience governing themselves before, as what happens when a colony becomes free, or any situation where there's a new government forming, people get heavily involved in coming up with all types of lists of things people should and shouldn't do. When the Philippines became a democracy after President Marcos had to flee and Corazon Aquino took over, well, the Catholic Church, for example, got heavily involved in writing up the Philippine Constitution. And they had all types of things they were involved in. And that was necessary because you had an urban insurgency going on in the Philippines and a guerrilla insurgency going on in the mountains in the, in the Philippines. And General Ramos was assigned the task of dealing with the uh, gu- guerrilla insurgency in the mountains. And Corazon Aquino had to deal with it in the cities. They had no allegiance to the state. The people didn't believe in the state very much. So she had to enlist the services of the Catholic Church, which did have connections to the people. And so lots of rules and things, details got put into it. What about the new Iraqi constitution? What are some of the complaints being made about that? It's all like ours, I thought. Pardon me? 
I don't know. I, I thought it was a lot like ours, but I'm not sure. No, it's not very much like ours at all. In fact, it's large, was it a complex. The Iraqi new the the new Iraqi constitution is is being fiercely debated right now, and the Sunnis are very upset because it it allows for a, a loose federate a, a loosely controlled federated type of system where the Kurds and the Shiites control all or most of the oil, and that would make the Sunni area essentially impoverished. So. You, you see, all types of details are being put into the Constitution, whether women should have rights, uh, whether there should be Sharia, whether they should have different types of courts. Lots of details are going into it. So what Heinlein's talking about now is a very real thing of new countries, new nations that are starting. When you start up a new nation and you have a lot of political input, especially with a new democracy starting, you get... Com- you get people coming into the situation with all types of stuff and it's not a situation where you get rid of the colonizing power or the oppressing power and suddenly you draw up a perfect blueprint of power equally distributed with nice checks and balances with all the I's dotted and the T's crossed that's not what it happens what Heinlein's really pushing here in this book is, is, is the mess of politics the complexity of politics and that every move to attack or to not attack or to form is always brought, is, is always you know compounded with unexpected things nothing is simple nothing's binary in politics that's really the one message we really should get out of this book there's actually much more to say about this book the moon is a harsh mistress um, why don't we do the following we could talk about this on Thursday and write our paper on Thursday and then we wouldn't have to read and write the paper and we could read the whole book over the weekend. We actually have a little bit more time in the course. I'd actually like to talk a little bit more about this book. So why don't we continue our discussion on Heinlein's book, The Moon is a Harvest Mistress, on Thursday. However, start to read the Gibson, William Gibson book, Neuromancer. That is an incredibly spectacular book. And we're gonna st- we we might end up touching on that on Thursday. The the paper the normal paper uh, for the last book will be due on um, Thursday. on this Thursday. Yeah, that's exactly right. And um, and then we'll continue with this book, uh, Heinlein's book. For Thursday, but also I've read at least try to read uh, fifty to a hundred pages of the Gibson book, uh, Neuromancer, because that is just because we might get into a little bit of that as well. But I would like to continue, hopefully, one more whole class on Heinlein's book on Thursday. Okay, see you then. <laughs>